Amy, thanks so much. Friends, it's great to be with you again. My name is James. I'm one of the staff team here. Uh, and it's a great privilege to open up this passage of 1 Peter. Peter's um, uh, audience is uh, in trouble. They're undergoing persecution. They, they are citizens of heaven, but they feel that they're strangers in this world. I don't know if you ever, as a Christian, have felt you stand out. If that's you tonight, Peter is writing to encourage you. So let's pray, whatever our situation, whether we'd call ourselves believers or not, let's pray that God uh, would speak to us through this passage. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who delights uh, to make yourself known, to make your son known. And so we pray, please, by your spirit, uh, help us to understand these words, show us ways that we are not living in a way that pleases you, and then point us to Jesus that we might live for him and live the lives we were designed to live, bringing glory to you, being fulfilled in the knowledge that we're your children. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. Let me ask you, what are you looking forward to? What is in your calendar that you are really excited about? I just asked the the little team that gathered to to pray before the service what they were looking forward to. Uh, A number of things people said. Somebody said, uh, I'm looking forward to the summer. Aren't we all looking forward to the summer a bit? It's been pretty miserable the last uh, few weeks. Someone said, I'm looking forward to finishing uni. Maybe that's you. You've had enough of study. You just want to get on and use the things you learn. Start earning some dough. Somebody very honestly said, I'm looking forward to going to bed tonight. <laughs> Perhaps that's you. Perhaps it's the next holiday. You've just started back and you frankly wish you were back where you came from. You're looking forward to the next holiday. My... Um, my first boss, my first job straight out of university, my boss had a policy that when you came back from a holiday, the first thing you had to do was to put the dates of the next holiday in your diary. And there's something in that, isn't there? If we've got something good to look forward to, it helps us keep going now. If we've got something that we know is good's going to happen in the future, we can endure all kinds of nonsense now, can't we? I hate waiting. I think there's only one thing I hate more than waiting, and that's waiting in the cold. But one early morning, uh, it was Christmas Eve 2017, a mate of mine got up, and um, I was a student at the time uh, doing a master's course, and we we got up really early, and uh, we went into central London. And I met him at a train station, and he was uh, wheeling a a big suitcase, and we, we plowed on into London and waited outside a butcher's. Now, the reason we're waiting outside this butcher's is because this is a kind of big, famous butcher. It supplied all the, the big restaurants in central London. But on Christmas Eve, they would auction off the leftover stock really cheaply. And we wanted to get there. We wanted to be the first in the queue for this auction. And we did. We were right at the front. And we managed to stand there for three or four hours in the freezing cold, excited that we knew we were going to get our hands on some cut-priced turkeys. My, my friend's case, he filled his suitcase. Lovely guy from Hong Kong. He brought all these um, little suckling baby pigs. But the thought of that just kept us happy. If you know something's good's coming, you can endure almost anything, can't you? If you, have, if you know someone who has a serious illness, you know that almost they'll endure almost anything for the prospect of a better prognosis. Having a hope, having an expectation that something good is coming steals us now, doesn't it, to face trouble, to endure hardship. Well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that Peter's uh, recipients are in trouble. 
They're undergoing persecution. They've believed in Jesus, and they're no longer like the people around them. Their desire is to please Jesus. They no longer live for themselves. They no longer just go with the flow, and as a result, they're citizens of heaven. It's glorious, but they find them exiles and strangers amongst their friends. They find the city that they called home or the cities they called home, suddenly they don't feel like home anymore. They're exiles in their own land. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage them. He writes it so they'll keep going, so they'll know how to live in the midst of this persecution. Well, maybe that's you today. Maybe someone this week has has mocked you for being a believer in Jesus. Maybe there's some pressure from family not to keep following Jesus wholeheartedly. Follow Jesus, but just don't be wholehearted. Well, Jesus says to us today, these things to encourage us to keep going for him, to keep going for Jesus in the midst of this time of being citizens of heaven and strangers on this earth. And Peter gives us three things, three commands that we are to do as we try and live this out. The first is this, hope completely. Hope completely. That is to say, set your hope on the time when Jesus will return. Make sure you're looking forward eagerly to the future. Have a look at verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look forward to the day when Jesus will come again. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Austin spoke of the inheritance that is being given to believers in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here tonight, then you have, we have a glorious inheritance. And you remember those words? It's an inheritance that's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven, stored up in heaven for us. Friends, this is the wonderful news that one day Jesus Christ will return to this earth and he will restore this broken creation. No longer will there be any more groaning. No longer will there be any more sin. We will not be sinned against, nor will we harm others with our own sin. There will be no more pain. There will be no more separations, no more dying, no more death. But rather, we will be in a restored, renewed, glorious creation where we will be filled with joy, with the people we love, and most chiefly with the Lord Jesus himself. It will be glorious. And if you're a Christian, that is your destiny. Well, Peter knows that if we know that, we'll be able to endure almost any hardship, any persecution now. So he says, lock your eyes onto that. Set your hope completely on that. Now, we need to remember that this is not wishful thinking. This is not kind of pie in the sky when you die. It's not a kind of old fairy tale. This is reality. Now, we're not helped in this, in that the way we use hope normally in English is so different, isn't it? Austin said last week, we we often say, I I hope for it not to rain tomorrow. And really what we're saying is, I kind of, I'd love good weather because I don't want to get wet as I walk into uni. Or I'd love good weather because that will make it easier to do the kind of, uh, the O-week stuff. It's a wish, isn't it? It's a kind of, you know, hope. It's a preference. Uh, even so, there's hope. It's, that's what hope is. It's kind of fuzzy-wuzzy. I'd like it to be like that. 
When I say I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, what I am not saying is expressing some kind of meteorological certainty, am I? I don't actually think it's not going to rain tomorrow. Certainly don't think it with any assurance. But that is not the way the Bible uses this word. When the Bible says hope here, it means something that is absolutely certain. It's got a cast iron guarantee. Peter is saying the reality is you have this hope, so fix your eyes on it and live in the light of the reality. If you're not doing that, then you're living out of kilter with the way the world is, is what he's saying. Do you see, you have this great hope. Therefore, verse 13, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, or better probably being sober-minded, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. See what he's saying? We're not to kind of do this half-heartedly. We're to do this with, with minds that are ready for action. It's to change us. And this phrase, with your minds ready for action, is kind of a slightly weird phrase. When I tell you what it is, you'll, you'll see why they, they wrote these words. But literally it says, gird up the loins of your minds. You see why they translate it like that? What, what on earth does that mean? Gird up the loins? What? what? It's, a, it's a Jewish phrase that uh, expresses being ready. But the image, I think, is, is of an, a Jewish man with long robes. And if he's ready to go do something, he needs to lift up his kind of long robes and tuck them into his belt. That's what it means. Be ready for action. Be the kind of, I guess, modern equivalent of, you know, going to a wedding and, and the bride is, is running a bit late. She's got her, you know, long kind of dress and she needs to run. You don't often see brides run, but she's so late that she runs. So what does she do? She picks up the... the I've never done this, by the way. But... <laughs> she, she hitches up her dress just slightly so she can run, because otherwise she'll fall over. And that's the image. Be ready. You can't do DIY with a long kind of dress on. You've got to hitch it up. Again, I don't know this from experience. Um, but do you see the point? Be ready. We might say, roll up your sleeves, or, or sweep away the cobwebs from your mind so your mind is ready to go. But he's not just saying this because he wants to use a kind of fancy idiom. He's saying this to remind us of something. This uh, passage in, in 1 Peter is full of allusions to the Exodus story. If you, if you know the Exodus story, you remember it's the time when uh, Israel are, are subject to Egypt. They're subject to Pharaoh in Egypt. And they cry out to God, and God promises to rescue them from Egypt. But Pharaoh refuses. And so God says, I will show my glory by sending plagues on, uh, on Egypt so that all of Egypt, all of the world will know that I am glorious. I'm more powerful than Pharaoh. And there is a series of uh, plagues. And each time Moses said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And so the last plague, you may remember, is the plague of the Passover. And this angel of death goes through the whole land of Egypt. And in every household, the firstborn male of that house will die. Well, God kindly provides a way out. He says, kill a Passover lamb. And then spread the blood of the lamb around the doorpost. And so as the angel comes, he will see those doors where there's blood and pass over. Well, that night they're to eat a meal, the Passover meal. And we're told they're to eat it in a particular way. Have a listen to how they're supposed to eat it. Now, this is an old, it's not a normal translation. It's an older translation because our translation hides this verse because it's so weird. But in this manner, you shall eat it. Here's the phrase. With your loins 
girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and there you shall eat it in haste. Do you see the point? Why are they to do that? Because they're to be ready to go. God is about to tell them, get out of Egypt. Pharaoh is about to say, you can go, leave. And so God says, be ready to go. Make sure your skirts are tucked into your belt so you can go. And that is how we are to be. Now, when you think about it, leaving Egypt was a big deal. It's a hard thing to do, right? There's some great joy in it, right? We're no longer slaves. We're going to this glorious promised land that God has prepared for us. But the journey there is an absolute nightmare. They have to go hundreds of miles on feet. They're going to be chased by, uh, by Pharaoh's chariots, the kind of tanks of the day. It's going to be an absolute nightmare. So what do they need to do? They need to fix their eyes on the prize. Remember the inheritance. And if you do, it will keep you going. And friends, in the same way, we have this hope this glorious promised land ready for us. Set your minds on it in such a way that it changes our lives now. But not just ready minds. Do you see what he says? Ready minds, but also sober minds. A couple of years ago, I went to a kind of community fair. You know the kind of thing, and they have all those sort of stalls and tombolas and second-hand books that nobody wanted, and um, then they're... Um, in the middle of that, in the middle of all this fun, the police had set up a stall. And the police had set up an anti-drink driving school. Sorry, that's a bit nasty, please. I didn't mean it like that. It, it, they'd set up this fun event. And, um, and, but it was an anti-drink driving stall. And uh, they had this kind of challenge. They had these special glasses. And you put on these glasses, and um, it stimulated being drunk. And so there was one for, you know, I've drunk 10 pints of beer. There was one that was um, high on meth. There was one on high on something else. And the challenge was put on these glasses that kind of mess up your vision and then see if you can walk around these cones. I don't know why I thought this. I thought that'd be quite fun to try. I was with my kids and I thought I'd see what I could do. I don't know why. I'm not very coordinate, co coordinated at the best of times, especially if I'm high on meth. But <laughs> <laughs> please... I'm looking at Holly. Holly. Holly sometimes tweets little kind of outtakes from the sermon. Please don't tweet that bit, Holly, um, or I'll be fired. Um, I thought I'm going to give this a go. So I put on these glasses, and my eyes, it, it, I, it's like being in a fish tank. Not that I've done that either. Um, it, it's so, and I try and walk around the cones, and I embarrass myself in front of my kids. And you see the point? It's a really effective anti-drink driving thing. It's impossible to do it. If your vision is blurry, you cannot focus on where you're going. And so Peter says, be sober-minded. Because the danger is we get intoxicated with the things of this world. And this clear hope, this certain hope we have, suddenly becomes fuzzy and waffly and distant. And we forget it. Our society trains us, doesn't it, to put our hope in our status, in our education, in our money, in the, the pay rise we get, in our weekend activities, in, in, the, in the things coming up, the night out. But it never encourages us, it never trains us to look for ultimate eternal realities. Now, it's not, of course, that we shouldn't get excited about the, the temporary, uh, the, t the, the things on the way. It's not that we shouldn't look forward to a night out or, or an evening off or, or some fun holiday coming up. Of course we, could, we should. But those things mustn't be given a burden they cannot bear. 
if your hope is really fixed in the job you get when you, you leave uni and you don't get it, you'll be crushed. If your hope is set in that relationship that seems so good now, but if it doesn't go where you want it to go, it'll be crushing. And so Peter says, don't make those things your hope. They're good things. Enjoy them. Look forward to them. But set your ultimate hope, your complete hope, on the future, on the time when Jesus will reveal this grace to us. Peter's hearers risked losing their jobs for being Christians. I reckon 30 years ago, it was pretty easy to be respectable in the world. I'm a respectable lawyer and a Christian. I'm a respectable doctor and a Christian. I reckon now, and for you guys, when you're senior in your professions, there'll be a choice in some professions. If I want to be respectable as a doctor, there'll be certain things I can't do that the, 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 the medical profession is demanding me to do. And you have to choose. Will you be a respectable doctor or will you be outcast as a doctor? If you're a, a lawyer, there'll be certain cases that you, you won't take. If you're a training to be a teacher, there'll be certain things that you'll be asked to teach that you will not be able to teach. And so you'll have to choose. Will I be respectable? Will I be one of the club? Or will I be faithful to Jesus? And if we're... If our hope is set on, on my career as a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer, and that pressure comes, then we'll fold. We'll keep our heads down, won't we? And so Peter is saying, don't let that be your ultimate hope. Let the true hope that lasts forever, that imperishable, undefiled inheritance, let that be your true hope. So let me ask you, when was the last time you thought about that inheritance. When was the last time you, you really got down and spent some time remembering, I have this inheritance and it's glorious and it's mine. And, and let the troubles, the, the opposition you face now be, be qualified in the light of that. Not that it, it takes away the pain of that, but that it's not as important because we know where we're going. When was the last time you encouraged someone with that truth? Someone who's having a hard time. Someone who's tempted to keep their head down. They're, they're too frightened to invite a friend to the O-Week event. When did you encourage them with this glorious hope of the future? You can imagine as the, as the Israelites set out from Egypt and were tempted to grumble and complain, they encouraged one another. When on the way, God has promised something glorious. And as we do that, it changes our perspective. I found this so helpful this week. I got back from holiday on, on Monday morning, had a couple of great weeks away in Rotorua. But during that time, we were really hoping that the, the Japanese border might open up or there'd be some signs. I think most of you know that uh, we're supposed to be in Tokyo right now running a, a training course there, and we're waiting for the borders to open. And as I got back, I was just tempted to think that this is, I was just down. And I, I, I realized I was kind of, looking forward so much that time when we'll be in our own house, when we'll be reunited with our, own, our, our stuff, when I'll be able to buy my own coffee machine. There's all these things I'm looking forward to. And they're, they're all reasonable things. But I realized my hope had been placed in there. And as I shifted my hope back to this glorious promised future, I realized actually my, my spirit lifted. Set our hopes. Let's set our hopes completely on this future. Completely. Hope completely. Second thing Peter says is live holily. 
I was very pleased when I, I wrote this point. Uh, if, you've, if you're looking at the outline, you can see that all of my points end in L-Y, which preachers love to do. They love to have patterns that helps you remember it. And I, I thought I've done so well. I didn't, wasn't sure if holily was actually a word. I looked it up in the dictionary. It is a word. And so I was very pleased when I wrote that. And then I realized that holily is an incredibly difficult word to say. So I'm not going to say it anymore. I'm going to say be holy. <laughs> be holy. Look at verse 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former, former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Now, holiness often gets a bad rap. I don't know what you think of holiness. There's so many kind of caricatures of a person, aren't there? The, you know, the kind of pious fraud or the, the kind of slightly remote, slightly kind of distant, slightly sort of I'm better than you kind of figure. Or maybe it's a kind of comedy figure. I googled a holy person and without fail on Google Images came up men with long beards. And one or two women, they didn't have beards, but they had halos. You either got to have a beard or a halo if you're a holy person. This is ridiculous. But see what this actually is. This is a call this is a call to be like God. This is an invitation to be like God. Now, just think about that for a minute. That means this can only be a good thing. Jesus, God come to earth, God with skin on, if you like, was the most fulfilled person ever to walk this earth. The person most full of joy. The person most full of love. The most human person and this is an invitation to be like him. It is a good and glorious thing. Now note the order. It's in response to a relationship we already have. We are God's children. We're adopted into his family. So keep the family likeness. Be holy. It's not the other way around. It's not, you know, try and, and be as good as you can, as, as kind of holy as you can, and then maybe God will let you into the family. No. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in the family. So keep the family likeness and be holy. Be what God has made us to be. Well, Peter says it's written, doesn't he? This is a quote from Leviticus 19. And it's part of a section about how Israel is to live. Once they come into the promised land, uh, they are to be holy. They are to be distinct from the people around them. And that's the essence of holiness. It's distinction from those around, difference. And the point was, uh, as Israel lived out God's holiness, as they loved one another, as they cared for the widows and the poor, as they, they shared their things, as there wasn't crime all over the place, uh, the other nations looked in and they said, wow, isn't that amazing? And then they'd say, wow, those people must have a great God. And friends, it should be the same for us, shouldn't it? As people come into uni church and, and they see the way we relate to each other, we don't hold grudges and, and we love one another, they should say, wow, these people are different. Not because they're good, but because their God is good. But in Leviticus, there were frankly some pretty bizarre things. There was a moral holiness, like I just described, but it affected all kinds of other things. It affected what they ate. It affected what they wear. They couldn't wear clothes with kind of different fibers. It all had to be one thing. Uh, it affected uh, if they had mold in their house. If you're someone who's uh, kind of let some mold grow around your dormitory window, you'd have to call a priest in. It, it's pretty weird. But it reminded them that holiness was to be comprehensive. It was to be everywhere. Whenever they ate, 
Let's remember, God is holy. I'm to be holy because I am God's, and God is different. When they, when they washed, when they put on the new clothes, they had to do certain things. They remembered, I am holy. When they got their mold around the window, they had to call a priest. Please don't do that. You, we don't need to do that. Don't call Andrew or, or me. Call Andrew if you like, but don't call me about your mold. But our holiness is not to be any less comprehensive, is it? Do you see what he says? In every area, in all of your conduct. The call is to live differently. Not in our clothes, not in our food, but in our conduct. And in every area, not just on Sunday, but in every relationship, in every place we go to, in every person we interact with, we are to be reflecting God's holiness. Do you see how interesting it is he says this to these people? If you run a letter to a mate who was being persecuted, I wonder what you'd want to say to them. You know, keep your chin up, keep going. Remember the hope, I think we'd want to say remember the hope. I'm not sure we'd say be holy. Just underlines how important it is that he says this to these, holy people, uh, to these people under persecution and yet keep being distinct. It's so different to the world, isn't it? The world says, look after yourself, look after the people like you and let everyone else do their own thing. And if people cross you, just cut them off. Uh, just the other week, I was just this week, as I was looking at this, I, I was reading the Times newspaper. It's a big English newspaper, not a, not a kind of gossipy thing. It's like the, the kind of gold standard in, in newspapers. And um, in there, there was an advice column for business people. This is highbrow stuff. And one person writes in and says, one of my employees wrote a racist tweet. Can I fire him? And I looked at it and thought, that is just so weird. Now, racism is clearly wrong. But the idea that somebody does something obnoxious, something stupid, and you just kick them out is bizarre, is it not? It wasn't that he sent many tweets. He sent one tweet after the Euro Olympics. Euro, not Olympics. I don't know anything about sport. Euro, Euro things. Anyway, isn't that bizarre? But as Christians, as people who are trying to be holy, as God is holy, we are to love those we disagree with. We're to look for the best in what they, they say and do. Not that we tolerate their sin, but we don't cut them off. We love them. We, we seek to win them. Now, if we're... In, in this letter, Peter is going to outline many different ways to be holy. But at essence is to be different. Now, there's, there's different bits to this. It's not that we get into a holy club and we just do the opposite to the world. But we are different to the world. We, the danger is we, we either become exactly like the world and just merge in, or we form our holy kind of huddles and, and do our own thing there that's the opposite of the world. No, we're to be in this world, but not of it. We're to be in this world, but different to it. Now, if we do that, we're going to be even stranger to the world. It may actually result in more persecution. If you're part of a study group where plagiarism is frankly pretty rife and you're trying to follow Jesus with the honesty of your words, there's a chance your classmates are going to turn on you, isn't it? If you're trying to be sexually pure amongst a society that is just seeking the next encounter, then the chance are people will mock you. The danger is people will turn on us, but we are to put God first, be holy as he is holy. 
And friends, you see, it's not just about behavior, is it? If we're seeking to be holy, our desires need to change. Our hearts need to change. Look at verse 14. Do not be conformed to the sinful desires. Rather be holy as the Lord is holy. Now, part of what it is to be human is to desire things, to want things. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but the danger is we're mastered by these desires, that we're conformed to them, conformed to the whims of our desires. If you've been with us when we did the seven deadly sins, I was so struck with those sins, those sins that are common to, to, to the world, and things like gluttony and anger and greed. Underneath all of them, when we got down to it, underneath all of them was desire. The question is, will we let our desires be refined by God and holy? Or will we let our desires run away and take us where we want? So greed, wanting more stuff, not a bad thing. But when it runs away, it's a terrible thing. Laziness, a desire for comfort. But when it runs away, it drives us from God. And so Peter says, not just your actions, but your hearts. Not just what you do, but what you want, what you desire. Let that be holy. And the glorious thing is, as we be holy... We find, as we change our desires, that we find our greatest desire in Jesus. Friends, I wonder, where is our conduct not like God's? What are the areas where you're not being holy as God is holy? Where are the areas where your desires are so out of kilter with God's? I was struck by this in my own relationships. As I had two weeks away with my family, two weeks kind of parenting my kids, I was thinking, do I love them? Do I parent them as God parents me? Am I kind with them? Am I patient with them, even when they're being a pain in the neck? What about your flatmates? What about your husband or your wife, your friends? Are you holy with them as God is holy? Is your conversation with them holy? Friends, if we realize, as I've realized this week, that we're not holy, then we come back to him and say, Father, thank you that I am your child. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for purifying me and making me holy. Help me to have desires that conform to your desires. Help me by the spirit you have put inside me to be holy. Where's the Holy Spirit putting his finger on your life? Well, friends, thirdly, and much more briefly, fear rightly. Fear rightly. This is so important, but it's also, I think, an area of confusion. Maybe that this is somewhere you want to ask questions. Um, but look at verse 17. If you appeal to the Father, who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourself in reverence during your time living as strangers. Now, clearly, if we're Christians... We call on God as our Father. We appeal to our Father. He's welcomed us into the family. That is probably the chief and greatest joy of the Christian life, that God is our Father. If I can go on the limb here slightly, uh, um, I'll, maybe I won't go on. Yeah, I'm going to go on a limb and probably offend someone. But if you're someone who prays, God, you just say, you get down to pray and say, God, thank you for the day. And just say, God. And if that's all you ever pray, if that's the only way to address God, can I suggest you're missing out? Because he's not just God. God suggests he's distant and far off. Muslims call God Allah. They call him just God. Our privilege is not just to call him God or Lord. It's to call him Father. And he loves us and cares for us as children. Not that you always have to call him Father. 
But if you never call him father, then what's going on? It's a wonderful privilege. But Peter's saying, just because he's your father, don't forget that he's also our judge. He's a judge who judges impartially on the basis of our work. And the knowledge of this day of judgment should impact our lives. It should help us to live reverently or literally with fear. If we recognize that one day we'll give an account of how we have lived, we can't think that because God's our dad will get off lightly. Now, as Christians, we need to be really careful and clear on this. This is not, the Bible is crystal clear. All of us will be judged, believers and unbelievers, and will be judged by Jesus, whom God has delegated judging to, and the basis of the judgment will be our works. But for the Christian, there is no fear. There is no condemnation, uh, sorry, there's no dread. There is no, because there is no condemnation, Jesus has paid the penalty. This will not be a judgment that determines whether we go to heaven or hell. But that doesn't mean it's not important. Because the proof that we are part of God's family, that we are forgiven children, is in our works. Not that our works are perfect. Not that we often wish we did different things in the way we live. But that our works are testimony that we are his children. We are not perfect, but we are not what we once were. And Peter is saying, because God is going to judge in that way, it doesn't matter whether we're an unbeliever or a believer, God hates wrongdoing. And if you're a believer who's full of wrongdoing, it should be a warning. Not that we're dread, full, full of dread, but it should fill us with reverent fear. I don't know if this illustration helps. Imagine a schoolboy, schoolgirl, bringing home their term card. Maybe some of you can remember back to those days where, you know, you got your report card and, and it had all your kind of grades on and, and you brought it home. It's not as if your parents, well, if your parents are fairly normal people, it's not as if your parents are waiting for you at the door. Sorry if someone's dad was waiting for you at the door. You, you, it's not as if your parents are waiting at the door and they said, let me see your report card because this is going to determine whether you sleep out in the garage or not. This is not you're in or out of the family, is it? You're in the family, irrespective of what's on that card. But what is on that card, therefore, doesn't matter. Someone said, oh, it doesn't matter. No, of course it matters. We know it matters. Because if we've done well, then our parents are pleased and proud of us. And if we've done terribly, then they may well be ticked off. And if we've um, been promised some reward, if you, you, know, if you get all A's, I'll buy you an iPhone. Well, then we'll, we'll, it matters, doesn't it? Well, it's in the same way. On Judgment Day, it will not be a matter of whether we're in the family or not. If you're a believer, you are in the family. But at the same time, uh, the reward that we have in heaven, the extent of our treasure in heaven, if you like, will be on the basis of how we've used the opportunities God has given us. If you like, the question is, who are we fearing? Are we fearing our Heavenly Father? Or are we just fearing the world? Just fearing our friends? Just fearing our bosses? Whose praise are we looking for? That of the world's? Or of our Heavenly Father, the day when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And friends, this is, so, uh, this is all the more so in the light of verse 18. Look at verse 18. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with the perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. 
Do you see, the reason we are no longer slaves to sin, that we're welcome into the family of God, is because a great price is paid. And what is the price? The blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this reminds us sin is serious. This is not like one of those crimes where, you know, technically it's illegal, but nobody really cares. Apparently in York, in, in, in England, if you, you shoot an arrow at something, then it's technically illegal. You, you're not allowed to use arrows in, inside York. But, you know, if you're at York University, you can shoot an arrow. No one cares. But technically it's illegal. And some people think that crime, that the sin is like that. Well, everyone's sinning. Everyone's ignoring God, so it doesn't really matter. But no, it was such a big deal that God had to send his one and only son, that he had to hang on the cross and shed his blood that we might be bought out of slavery. No amount of silver or gold could get us out of it. If you're somebody here checking things out and wondering, what is this Jesus stuff about? Maybe that you think, you know, there, maybe there is a judgment, but surely on that day, well, God's just going to weigh things up and I've got a whole load of stuff I'm, I'm pretty proud about. Yeah, there's, there's some stuff I, I'd rather not come to light, but you know, my good stuff outweighs my bad. And sure, friend, there are many things you're proud of. But you see, that's not the issue. Our sin is so serious that it plunges us into a debt that we can never repay. And yet, gloriously, Jesus, with his blood, has paid that debt. And he offers to pay it for us tonight, whoever you are. Let me free you from your debt, he says. But friends, as we see that debt paid, as we see the way his blood has brought us out of this, this old way into the new, do we not want to live reverently for him? Because he will review our lives and he's done everything to make sure we're welcomed into the family. Well, there's again here a clear link to the Passover. At the Passover meal, Israel was to eat, uh, the, sorry, the lamb, they were, the lamb they were to kill was to be an unblemished lamb. They couldn't just go and get any old mangy lamb. They had to get a perfect lamb or as near perfect a one as they could get. And what is the lamb that was slain here? What does Peter say? The precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Imagine if you were the boy. Are there any firstborn sons here? Not many. Some not admitting it. There are some. Imagine if that was you, firstborn son, and God has said, if there is not that lamb slain and, and the blood is around the doorpost, you're gone. The angel will come and kill you. You'd be so sure to check. Dad, have you killed that lamb? Yes, I killed the lamb. <laughs> Did you kill it properly? Yes, I killed it properly. Have you put the blood around the, lamp, the, the doorpost? Yes, I did. Did you do it properly? You weren't on your phone doing it half-heartedly. No, I did it properly. Can I go and check? You'd do everything to make sure it's there, wouldn't you? Because you revere God. God has said judgment will come and you want to be sure. And then in the morning when you wake up, and in houses all around Egypt, there is wailing because people have ignored this and, and they've, they've not killed the lamb. Aren't you full of marvel that you are alive because the lamb has been slain? God has done exactly what he said and that lamb has saved your life and you marvel at God's kindness. Well, friends, do you see? The lamb has been slain. But not just any lamb, the eternal Lamb of God, 
This was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. There was no plan B. This is no plan B. This is the plan. Look at verse 20 as we finish. He was foreknown. Jesus was foreknown. The Lamb was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Though through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Do you see it's not plan B? From before the foundation of the world, before any of us were created, this was God's plan. But why was it revealed now? Look closely at that. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. For you. For me. God has revealed Jesus that we might believe in him that we might have this glorious hope. And friends, as we embrace Jesus, we believe through him in God who raised him from the dead and has raised him into glory in heaven. While our inheritance is stored up, an inheritance guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection that is so sure and certain. So friends, this week, put your hope completely on Jesus. Look at Jesus. See Jesus with the eyes of faith. And let that transform your life. That you can live in a holy way. That you can fear rightly, not fearing the world, but living for the praise of our heavenly Father who's done everything, not even sparing his own son. Look at Jesus, the lamb who was slain, who was revealed at this time for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us, that you, as we put our trust in Christ, have made us citizens of heaven, that you have welcomed us into your family. And yet, Father, as we walk this journey through this world where we are strangers on our way to the promised land, we find it so hard. We're so tempted to compromise, to go back to the old ways, to, to live in the way that suits our desires. So we pray, dear Father, help each one of us to set our hope completely on that glory that will be revealed in that day. And then, dear Father, help us to live in a way that is pleasing to you and good for us as we live in a holy way. Help us too, dear Father, to fear rightly. Forgive us for the ways we see the world around us and envy it or fear it. But help us rather to fear and to revere you, to live longing for those words of praise from you on that judgment day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in to your glorious rest. May that be true of each one of us. For Jesus' sake, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.